0: So we are doing the Luke travel narrative parables and last week we started what shall I do to inherit eternal life. The answer that the lawyer gives is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you answered correctly, you do this and you will live. And so then we get the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is the supporting parable to answer that question. Now according to Bailey's outline Martha and Mary are part of this and I kind of agree with it. So we're now down to Luke 10:38 the story obviously is Yeshua stops in a village and I said last time that one of the key things about this travel narrative is all of the parables are given in villages. It all is done by the time he gets to the big city of Jerusalem. So these are all village folk that he's talking to. And as you're interpreting the parables, you have to interpret them in the context of a village audience as opposed to a cosmopolitan audience. So Martha and Mary, he's in their house, and Martha is scurrying around, getting food getting people sorted out and so forth and she's grumpy because her sister mary isn't helping so she goes to yeshua and says tell her to help me i'm not sure that if i were yeshua i'd want to get in the middle of that and in fact he really doesn't what he says is martha martha you are anxious and troubled about many things but one thing is necessary Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, if you unpack that, you are anxious and troubled about many things. In other words, she's got a lot on her mind. And what Yeshua says is, only one thing is necessary. That's how I read that sentence. And then he says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So the idea that she has made a choice indicates that the choice is one he approves of, obviously, and it's also a choice that will not be taken away from her. And I will suggest that what we're talking about here is she has metaphorically, if you will, chosen to follow him. And having chosen to follow him, that choice won't be taken from her. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this is a link to the rich ruler in Luke 18, which is the same question. If you go back up to the lawyer in Luke 10. A lawyer stood up and asked, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Yeshua is telling him, you're a lawyer. What does the law say about it? That tells me two things. One is that the law is important, not just to observant Jews, but to everybody. So the law, if you will, is got everything that you need. Now, why do I say that? If you read the book of Hebrews, one of the things it says is that The generation in the wilderness received the same gospel, but they didn't mix it with faith. So they didn't get to enter the rest. They died in the wilderness. But the idea there is that they have the same gospel as we do, which tells me, as I have always believed, that the Torah is the gospel. And that the Sunday church is, how shall we say, not quite correct in their understanding of the gospel, because what they say the gospel is, is Yeshua died for your sin, rose again, and if you believe in him, you get eternal life, which is true. That's a true thing. But the fact that the generation of the wilderness had the gospel as well tells me that the New Testament is not fundamentally new and I've said this to you before lots of times, a testament is a testimony or evidence. So what the New Testament is, is the evidence that the promises of God have been fulfilled and that the Messiah who was promised has come and that the Messiah who was promised has come and has done what he was prophesied to do. What I'm saying to you is, As far back as Moses, what you have are prophecies that give you everything you need. And the fact that Yeshua, when he comes, does the things of the prophecy and then dies and is raised from the dead is simply a fulfillment of the prophecy. So the generation as far back as Moses has the gospel. And the gospel is, among other things, God hates empires. God wants you to be free and God wants to be in relationship with you. The problem with empires is they eventually demand worship and eventually displace God or try to. So one of the things that happens as an empire matures and develops is that it demands absolute loyalty to the point of worship, and God doesn't care for that. One of the things we can see in our late-stage empire that we're going through is they are now essentially demanding worship. You have got to buy into their narrative and their particular psychoses in order to be accepted. So we're going the same way that everybody else has gone. So anyway, what the lawyer gets as an answer is love God, love your neighbor. That's his encapsulation of the Torah, which has everything you need. Now what we're going to do, the rich ruler tonight, is he is going to ask the same question and he's going to get a different answer, but it's the same answer. So we're now in Luke 18 and we'll start in verse 18. And by the way, this shows up in Matthew and Mark as well. And Slightly different in Matthew and Mark, uh, which will prove useful. So, from Luke now. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Yeshua said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, or do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and your father. Now, I am not sure why the snark at the beginning. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I'm not sure what prompts that because it feels to me sharp as in why are you asking stupid questions kind of an answer. It may be and this is a guess I have no idea whether it's correct or not. It may be that He doesn't want to be associated as the Son of God at this point, publicly. That may be the case, I don't know. But for whatever reason, he does start off rather sharply. The comment was, just as the lawyer, when he got a succinct answer to his question, wanted to appear to be the smartest man in the room, And in verse uh, 1029, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Yeshua, and who is my neighbor? He got an answer, and the answer wasn't complete enough for him, so he asked this follow-on question, and perhaps this ruler is sort of in the same mode and hasn't heard what's gone before, which is counsel of humility and approaching God like a child, and he is a ruler. So it is entirely possible that he's coming there with a an attitude, if you will. So anyway, what Yeshua says to him, once we get past the sharp answer, is you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Now I see that as sort of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, In other words, he's pointing him at Moses. And that's different than what the lawyer, Yeshua says elsewhere in scripture, love God, love your neighbor, the rest is details. So the lawyer answers with that up front, so we don't go through the details. Here we have details, but not the overview. The point I'm making is both the lawyer and the ruler get pointed back to Moses. Down to verse 21. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Yeshua heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, in the other version of this, I believe it's in Mark That adjuration to sell everything and distribute to the poor is preceded by Yeshua looked at him and loved him. So the answer is explicitly prefaced with Yeshua loves this guy and wants to give him an answer that will be useful to him, which belies to me the sharp initial answer. The comment was, when the rich ruler says, I've done all that, Yeshua looked at him and said, well, gee, you thought just following the law was going to do it. A couple of things about that. Thing one is, being well-behaved is really important, but being well-behaved doesn't change you from mortal to immortal. It simply makes you a well-behaved dead person when you finally die. So certainly following Torah is important, but the answer that he gives to the lawyer is love God, love your neighbor. Now, loving God, loving your neighbor involves being well-behaved, but it also has to do with how you treat and how you relate to people around you and how you relate to God one of the things I'm fond of saying, I haven't said it in a long time, so I'll say it now, is following Torah is just enlightened self-interest. Because if you don't lie about people, you don't rob anybody and so forth, you wind up not getting into trouble. So being a well-behaved person is enlightened self-interest. Because God has set up his universe so that If you are not a good person, it does eventually catch up with you. So knowing what the rules are of God's universe and following them is enlightened self-interest. But as I say, following the rules doesn't change you from mortal to immortal. It simply makes you a well-behaved dead person. So the answer given to the lawyer, love God, love your neighbor, is how do I do that? And we get the parable of the Good Samaritan, where you drop what you're doing and you go help somebody else and you do whatever is necessary to make sure that that person gets back to as close to pre-robbery status as you can. The priest and the Levite who are walking by the Samaritan have got more important things to do than check on this guy laying naked in the road. Samaritan doesn't have anything more important to do than look after this person who has been beaten, robbed, and stripped. So, love God, love your neighbor. Here's how you do that in a parable. You drop what you're doing, and you go help your neighbor when he needs it, whatever that involves. Back to our rich ruler. What the rich ruler is saying is, I have been well behaved all my life. What he is not saying is I am willing to drop everything to help my neighbor. Come back now to Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha, Mary is basically willing to drop everything and listen to Yeshua. To the Serious annoyance of her sister. Now, if you're a cynic, you could also say, she's getting out of work, too. If you want to be cynical, you certainly can. comment was that Martha, as she is serving people, is in fact showing hospitality, which is a Torah virtue. Mary, on the other hand, is following Yeshua, which is also a Torah virtue, and in this context, Yeshua says it's the more important virtue. And back to our rich young ruler. He's well behaved. He's interested in obtaining eternal life. It's something that he's clearly wanting to do. He is not one of these people whose attitude is whoever dies with the most toys wins. His focus is on the kingdom and life after death. And what Yeshua is saying to him is you've got to be willing to drop everything and follow me, parenthesis, drop everything to help your neighbor. And helping your neighbor, by the way, includes distributing the material goods that enable your neighbor to survive. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Yeshua looked at him with sadness and said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's a balance, because in the Torah, what God does is uses wealth to motivate us he says, I'll be your God, you be my people, and as long as you are following my covenant, it is really going to go well with you. I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to increase your flocks and your herds. You're going to have rain and dew at the proper time for agriculture. Things are really going to go well with you. So that's motivating you by the wealth of the world. On the other hand... Wealth and the world are clearly regarded as a trap. So in Deuteronomy 32, you have the Song of Moses. And I'll pick it up in Deuteronomy 32, verse 13. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the finest of the wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. In other words, this is a really good life full of abundance, worldly abundance. But then 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stood him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom their fathers had never dreaded. The point here is that there's a balance. If you're walking with God in the way that he wants you to walk, what he says is we will prosper because I'll defeat your enemies, all that kind of thing. But the problem is once that happens, people tend to forget God. I was listening to Ron Dart today, but he was talking very similarly. And one of the things that he said is Christians do much better in bad times because when times are good, We tend not to look to God for everything. We tend to focus on the stuff. Really grateful at all the stuff we have and, you know, may perfunctorily thank God for it. But you're not really focused on God. And so what happens to the church is the church gets lax. The church quits pushing. The church starts following the culture instead of leading the culture, which is what's happening to us. The church is following the culture instead of leading the culture. And that is a, an artifact of wealth. Same thing that Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy 32. So coming back to our rich young ruler, what the rich young ruler is saying is, I'm really well behaved. I'm interested in eternal life. What do I need to do? And Yeshua said, what you need to do is unwind from the world, and you need to turn back to me, and you need to sell everything and follow me. The comment was, Proverbs says, honor the Lord with the first of everything, and I don't doubt that this guy was doing that. In other words, he was making the required sacrifices, he was doing all that stuff, but his focus was worldly. And what Yeshua sees in him is you need to unwind from the world because you are too much in the world. It's the same thing Moses said. I delight in prospering you, but there comes a point where I have prospered you to the point where you now take me for granted and you go after other gods and then things get bad. The thing about this, I mean, certainly it is a lesson for all time, but it is not an adjuration to general poverty. When this guy comes up and asks the question, Yeshua looks at him and loves him and says, okay, your problem is you're too wound up in the world. You need to unwind from the world and follow me, which goes back to Mary and Martha Martha, at that particular stage of the day, is wound up in the details of the world, in other words, getting guests settled and doing the hospitality thing, which is a good thing. But Mary recognizes, wait a minute, this is special. We've got the Messiah with us. It's more important to be with him than it is to make sure that we have the right silverware on the table. That, to me, is how these two parables are connected. The lawyer, love God, love your neighbor. All right, what does it actually mean to love your neighbor? It means dropping your agenda when you see your neighbor in trouble. Mary and Martha mary is willing to drop the hospitality agenda because right now this is special we have the messiah here and it's more important to listen to him than it is to make sure that the crystal is polished and then you have the rich young ruler who is well behaved but is wound up in the world and needs to get unwound from the world and follow yeshua and of course he's not willing to do it and so then yeshua says It's more difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And then those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, if you're willing to follow after God and do whatever God calls you to do in the moment, God can get it figured out for you. If you insist on doing it your own way, then you're wrapped up in the world. And then in 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life now notice by the way that in both cases what he's doing is he is motivating with treasure he says to the rich wrong ruler you've got all this treasure on earth and if you follow me and get rid of that stuff what you will have is treasure in heaven you will have eternal treasure instead of temporal treasure so down to verse 29 and he said to them truly i say to you there is not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of god who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life what have they left they've left relationships And what he's saying is, you have left relationships for my sake. The relationships that you will gain in this life will be far more than what you've left, and then also you will have eternal life. We're not talking treasures. Treasures is not mentioned in 29 and 30. The gain in 29 and 30, I'm suggesting, is two things. One is you will gain human relationships in this life. In other words, you've left human relationships, you've left your household, your wife, your brothers, your parents, your children, you've left relationships to follow me. The relationships you gain in that process will be far more. And also, in the age to come, you will have eternal life we're not talking about treasure in 29 and 30 we were talking about treasure in verse 22 which is the young ruler the comment was which was a good comment one of the things that yeshua very well may be thinking of is someone who is a ruler and has extensive property and extensive wealth has got to devote a great deal of time and energy to managing it that goes with the territory And one of the things that Yeshua may be saying is your responsibilities have kept you from following God. So in addition to getting some wealth out into the community to help the poor, for example, one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to free yourself up from some of your responsibilities and you're going to be able now to shift your focus on me. Good good comment, I agree. Again, the comment going along with Mike's comment is Martha is in the same trap. She is feeling responsible and burdened for all the guests in her house. And Yeshua is saying the responsibilities that you have right now are not what's important. The thing that's important right now is following me or listening to me. And he says the same thing to the ruler. Yeah, very good comments, both of them. All right, so the next thing we're going to do is we have Yeshua on prayer. And that's going to have several things. So you're going to have the Lord's Prayer. Then you're going to have the friend at midnight who knocks on the door looking for some bread because he's got unexpected guests. And then you're going to have the widow and the unjust judge. And we're also going to have the publican and the Pharisee. All of those are in the context of prayer. I'll have an outline for you next time. But You have the content of prayer, which is the Lord's Prayer. You have then the assurance of prayer which is the friend at midnight then you have the unjust judge which is again the assurance of prayer in other words the assurance that prayer works in both cases and then you have the publican and the pharisee which is the attitude that you should have in prayer so the lord's prayer is what's the content the publican and the pharisee is what's your attitude when you pray And so that'll be the chiasm that we'll go through next time.